Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about domestic homicide, dangerousness, and lethality assessments. But before we jump into that topic, let me remind you, as I do every week of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you have benefited from listening to the PeaceWorks podcast, then I believe PeaceWorks University is your next best step. PeaceWorks University offers members a a vault of past teaching material from myself, as well as monthly masterclasses with experts in the field covering topics like emotional abuse and physical abuse, sexual abuse in marriage, and even our topic today, dangerousness and lethality. So uh, if you'd like to take the next step, then I believe PeaceWorks University is the, the best move. And you can find out more about PeaceWorks University on our website, chrismoles.org. All right, friends, let's talk a little bit about a difficult but necessary topic, and that is the realities of domestic homicide. So if domestic abuse is left unchecked without proper intervention and there's no safety measures or uh, transformation or necessary pieces to remedy right, the realities of domestic abuse, it is believed that it will escalate. And my experience would confirm that, that over time, domestic abuse without intervention, safety, or transformation will escalate as individuals who seek power and control will continue right, to up the ante uh, in, in order to maintain that level of, uh, of oppression. Now, when victims resist, of course, abusers feel often feel attacked. They feel it necessary to escalate uh, when, uh, even when that resistance is real or perceived. And so it's just important for us as helpers to know that even when we're in the, for lack of a better word, the infancy of a case, or we're not seeing all of the aspects of, say, the power and control wheel, or if you're using my book, all of the fruit on the tree is not visible, it is important to continue to press in and learn and gather information in order to see the pattern that may be presenting itself or evolving over time. Now, escalation can happen gradually or it can happen relatively quickly depending upon the circumstances, situation, and the parties involved. Remember, domestic abuse is complex. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It is very unique to each case. And while there are similarities that will be present in the life of every victim and every perpetrator, there are also distinctives that will be unique to that couple. And so uh, this is not an easy work, but it is a necessary work. And considering that domestic abuse will always escalate, It's important for us to recognize that without intervention, with no change or shift in direction toward safety or transformation, an escalating domestic event will eventually lead to death. 
I mean, that's the end result, isn't it? If the abuser continues to abuse and the victim resists and then the abuser ups the ante and the victim resists and the abuser ups the ante, eventually the abusive individual, the one in power, the one with control, their last move of escalation will be to kill their partner. So keep that in mind that this work, while we may not see, you know, much in by way of domestic homicide in our own work, it is a reality, right? It is something that happens within these relationships. And if you do the work long enough, it is something that will intersect with your work. So I've been involved in this work for uh, 15 or 16 years. So all kinds of all kind of bleeds together. But uh, I wish I could say that I've never, I've never worked a case that involved someone dying. Uh, but I can't say that. Uh, this is a reality. I've also consulted on numerous cases, helped review on. Uh, I, I don't even I don't even know the number of cases that were related to domestic homicide. So directly involved in cases where people have died, I, I would say maybe two or three in my work. But um, being involved in teams that consulted and reviewed and were part of assessments of people who had lost their life, um, probably a dozen or more. So the reality is there, and that's just anecdotal. When you look at the statistics, uh, you see um, that domestic homicide is a reality in our country. And so it's important that we as people helpers have at least a basic understanding of the risk that is um, associated with domestic abuse. But for many of us, we really, again, like to see this as a marriage problem or we really don't want to think that negatively about the situation. But this podcast, hopefully, will help just shed some light on that and hopefully encourage you to take the risk seriously. No, not every domestic abuse case will end in death. In fact, most will not. But there are those that do result in the loss of life. I just want to walk you through some basic questions. I'm actually just going to list off nine of them uh, just to kind of give you a feel uh, for what experts and law enforcement and other folks are, are looking for when they encounter or suspect domestic abuse. And one of the things that they're looking for when they want run through questions like this is, is there a risk of homicide? Is there a risk of loss of life? We call these dangerousness and lethality assessments or dangerousness and lethality tools. If you're a social worker listening or a nurse or a doctor, um, more so a nurse, sorry doctors, um, a law enforcement officer or someone in that field of response, then you were probably exposed to this in some of your early training. That a list of questions like the ones developed by John Hopkins University, for instance, are widely used among law enforcement and medical professionals uh, to help determine the level of risk that a victim is facing. Now, there are very few um, analysis of the effectiveness of the questions, but there is a lot of evidence associated with death that shows that there are many factors that contribute or indicate a higher risk of homicide. And that's what questions like these are built around. Let's just walk through a few of them just to kind of give you an idea of what we're looking for when we're interacting with a victim of domestic abuse. 
Question number one, has your partner ever used a weapon against you or threatened you with a weapon? You know, the use of weapons and in particular handguns or guns is the number one risk factor for an individual uh, in a domestic abuse situation in losing their life. The, the greatest means of reducing the risk of domestic homicide is to limit the access to firearms. Now, I'm not making a political statement across the board, but I am saying that's why individuals who are under domestic violence protective orders in our country or who have been convicted of domestic violence crimes under the federal Lautenberg Act are not permitted to own firearms. The risk to the victim is exponentially higher when firearms are present. So one of the things I would recommend as a people helper is to allow or work with the court systems uh, to place individuals under orders of protection or if there's criminal activity to pursue criminal charges when possible so that you can reduce that risk if they have firearms in the home. And even more so if they have used those firearms to intimidate their partner. The other thing, and I've been part of this on occasion, is to actually go and you know sign a document and document or log all of the firearms that you're taking and have them locked in another person's safe. Uh, being a middleman, if you were, if there's no criminal activity. Um, that's a little harder to do. But all of that to say, the use of weapons, the brandishing of weapons, the showing of weapons and using weapons to intimidate is a huge risk because the next step of using that weapon as a tool is to fire it. Number two, has your partner ever threatened to kill you or the children? Now, some might say this happens every day. My partner's constantly threatening to kill us. And uh, I think that's a shame. I think words matter and words have power. I was working with one individual one time who was a threatener. He, he would use threats to control his partner. And one time he used a litany of threats through text message. And that included a threat to kill her. When confronted, he said, well, of course I would never kill her. And our response was, did she know that? Well, he had to honestly reflect and say, well, no. And that's why it works. So threats to kill someone have to be taken seriously. We can't simply shrug them off and say, well, I know John, he would never kill anybody. That type of language has consequences. At least it should. And so it's a, a risk of escalation. It's a risk of lethality. So um, threats to murder someone need to be addressed and addressed properly. Number three, do you think your partner might try to kill you? So actually taking the victim's perception. Now, do you think your partner would actually try to kill you? Now, I, I would say most victims would probably rationalize, especially if they're in the context of abuse. Um, but some, if they really are able to connect the dots, would probably say to a law enforcement officer or to a counselor or to a helper or to a pastor, yeah, I think you might. That self-reflection is a massive indicator. If a victim were to say, yeah, I think he might, he has the capacity to do it, we have to take that seriously. Number four, does he or she have a 
gun, does your partner have a gun handy? Like, is it easily accept, accessible? Well, Chris, you already asked about firearms. Yes, in the first question, we asked, have they ever used a weapon? The, the second question here is, is there a firearm accessible? And, and here's one of the distinctions to that. It's one thing for an individual to be cleaning their rifle. And while cleaning their rifle or cleaning a shotgun make veiled or passive aggressive threats to their partner, that's awful. It's dangerous and it actually raises red flags. It's another to know that there's a handgun um, in their car. And so if a victim is attempting to flee, to leave, and the partner is chasing them in the car, that gives us a whole new level of red flags, right? And so you can see where firearms are key to this discussion. And again, I don't want to get into a political debate about who should have guns and who should not have guns per se, but I do want us as pastors and Christian counselors and biblical counselors who tend, right, who tend to be on one side of a political fence on this issue, at least recognize that the presence of a firearm in these cases increases the risk of death. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do in response to that? And it doesn't have to be a political response, but it has to be a biblical, spiritual, and shepherding response so that we can protect those in our care. Number five, has he ever tried to choke you? Has your partner ever tried to choke you? Now, I don't like the word choke, but it is effective when asking a question. I prefer the word strangle because that's what's happening. When someone places their hand around your throat, they're not, they're strangling you. You choke on a piece of food, but another person is strangling you. We use the word choke in most questionnaires like this because it's the common vernacular. And it also gives you an inroad. And it's easier for a victim to say yes to that than to say, did, he, did, did your partner strangle you, right? Because, I mean, everyone knows what strangling is. I mean, it's attempting to take someone's life. My understanding is as quickly as five seconds, an individual can die from strangulation. It's a massive, um, uh, it's a huge um, violation of another individual's life and safety by placing your hands around their throat. The potential of just denying them oxygen is huge, but also crushing their larynx or causing vocal cord damage or leaving, uh, you know, bruising that can swell and inflammation that can cause you to struggle. Um, this is a big time red flag. And so when you're counseling with individuals who've been strangled, you know, put that high on your priority list of, okay, this has escalated to the point that their partner has attempted to kill them. Whether or not they would articulate that, whether or not their partner would say, yes, I wanted to kill them, their partner may say, I just wanted to scare them. But by placing their hands around their throat, applying pressure, for all intents and purposes, they threatened their life. So if the answer is yes, my partner has tried to strangle me, then that should indicate that their life is in danger. Does your partner ever follow you or spy on you 
or leave you threatening messages. The, the willingness to stalk another individual is a level of control that's not only intimidating, but it's also demonstrating that that belief system of property and situational circumstantial control. The idea here is that there's almost a sovereignty to the controlling act when stalking is involved. And stalking in and of itself, even the word, indicates that one person is a predator and the other is prey. Stalking increases a person's risk of lethality. As someone's control has gone to the point of not only monitoring them, but following them, dictating their daily activities to them, um, controlling them through threatening messages. Another huge red flag to dangerousness. Have you ever left your partner or separated from your partner? I, when I first got into work, we were often told that the most dangerous time for a victim was when they left. Uh, now, I would say victims, especially in the cases we're talking about today, where there's increased dangerousness and lethality, um, are always at risk. You know, I don't know that one point is more dangerous than another. But I certainly see, statistically speaking, anecdotally speaking, experientially speaking, that when a victim tries to leave, the violence tends to escalate. So I can totally see why we would say that the most dangerous time for a victim is when they attempt to leave. Uh, one more question just to consider. Is your partner unemployed? And I know that, seem, that may seem weird, but close proximity, lack of activity, and the stress of financial burden are all um, indicators of potential dangerousness. Well, just think about what's been happening during the COVID-19 pandemic, as we've seen an increase in criminal domestic violence. That close proximity, pressure, stress, and the realities of life have contributed, not caused, the cause of abuse is always abusers, always will be abusers, but has contributed to an increase in criminal domestic violence as opportunity is far greater. Same is true with cases of the unemployed. The added stress, the added emotional distress, the added risk of self-medicating, and the added Time within proximity all contribute to increased risks and lethality. Well, Chris, why do you bring this up today? Well, as I said in the beginning, people do die in cases of domestic abuse. I hope you never experience that. I hope you never have a client who loses their life or a client who takes someone's life. But it does happen. And it's important that we as people helpers have at least a basic understanding of the risk that domestic abuse escalates. And when interacting with a victim of domestic abuse, it's helpful to know their risk of danger or their risk of death. By simply going through a simple questionnaire, like some of the questions I gave you today, or like the one provided by John Hopkins, or like the one that's often used by law enforcement officers on the scene, it just gives us a feel, an understanding of the, the life that a victim is living and the risk that's present to them. Now, does that mean that they'll be willing to leave to seek safety? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they feel safer in the presence of uh, their partner than if they were to leave. Um, maybe 
they are you know, more comfortable with some aspects of this than we ever would be. But having a better understanding will help us make better recommendations, help us offer better resources, and be better informed uh, in the way in which we pray for victims. Are there weapons in the house? Have threats to commit homicide been made? Do you think that your partner would kill you? Can they access a means to kill you easily? Have they ever strangled you? Do they stalk you? Have they ever spied on you? Do they leave threatening messages? What's the employment status? Is your partner employed? Are they around a lot? Of course, you can follow up with other questions such as, are they using drugs and alcohol? Have they ever threatened to commit suicide? Have they ever abused the pets? And the list goes on and on and on. But my hope is that this simple list of questions will at least begin to spark an understanding in your heart and in your mind that this is serious, serious work. The potential for escalation is real and you and I can be part of at least assessing and resourcing individuals in dangerous situations. Well, thank you guys for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast today. I hope that was helpful. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. I'm so thankful that you're part of our podcast community. Uh, We love you guys. And until next time, God bless.